0: The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow our Facebook page and visit shadygrovepca.org. Alright, we're giving attention to Mark's Gospel. we In the middle of chapter 7, beginning at verse 24, and I'll just remind you that a real estate slogan, if you go to buy a piece of real estate or a house, they'll tell you the three most important things are, one, location, two, location, and three, location. (laughs) And a good Bible teacher's motto or preacher's motto is, one, context, two, Context. And three, context. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> so the context here is really important in understanding this passage because there's a disagreement that's going on between the scribes and the, and the Pharisees over what is clean and unclean. And Jesus makes it clear that what defiles you is not something that's external, outside of you, but it's, it's internal. And he proves that, now he's going to a very unclean area. He goes north by northwest, and he goes northwest here to a very Gentile region, to Tyre, Sidon, the region of Phoenicia. This is modern-day Lebanon. This is the Decapolis, where he was asked to leave the last time. This is Jezebel's hometown. This is where the Jews would say, unclean. And let's give attention to the text. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house, did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread, throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee and the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. They begged him to lay his hand on him. Taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephapha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them not to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Well, there's something pretty significant that's going on here. I want to start with the second story and then work back to the first story. They both have Something odd in each text, right i mean the 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 one is Jesus seems at first blush to be insulting to this woman and referring to her as a dog, and then the second one you've got Jesus spitting and even sticking his finger into somebody's ears, and you're like what 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 is that? and the good questions uh, let's see if we can get at what's going on here, so the first is. He is in this area that's a very, very Gentile region. And as I said, this is modern-day Lebanon, okay? And if you you take your bulletin and you just look back to the first reading we did from Isaiah 34 in your bulletin, if you look at verse 2, we are told about what is going to happen when the Messiah comes, what his reign will look like, what he's going to usher in. And we're told that he's going um, to come, and the glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. And then he says, they shall see the glory of the, of the Lord, the majesty of our God. And you get a lot of these quotes in the New Testament. Verse 3 is quoted in Hebrews 12. But then if you look over at the other reading in Isaiah 35, 5 to 10, we are told what this kingdom is going to look like. When the Messiah comes, we're told the eyes of the blind shall be opened the ears of the deaf, unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And that's a really interesting word because that's the word that's used here in this text. It's, very, it's a very rare word. It's only used once here, and it's this word magalalas, and it's, it's the idea of someone that has a very hard time speaking, okay? They're... And here in the in Lebanon territory, in a very Gentile region, Jesus is fulfilling Isaiah 35, and it's making it very clear he's come to Lebanon. Now he comes to one that has a megalolus. It's only used one other time, and it's right here in Mark 7:32 when it refers to um, he. They brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment or one who is mute, okay? And so Jesus now heals this man and shows who he is. Now, if you remember what the Lord responded to Moses' excuses going all the way back to the burning bush, and Moses started making lots of excuses why he couldn't go, and he said he was slow of tongue and he wasn't able to speak very well. And the Lord said, Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Jesus is saying, that's me. I have the same power. He does the miracle here. He does it in Lebanon. He's showing that I'm the Messiah, I'm the Lord, and his kingdom is breaking in. And so why does he use the saliva and the finger in his ears? Lots of speculation here. Some speculate that the faith healers in that day, that was kind of the method that they used I don't really know that from real, uh, I'm just hearing that from what other people have said. Others wonder if maybe because this man was deaf and mute, he was limited in his uh, senses, okay, his ears didn't work, he wasn't able to uh, understand. And so when the Lord touches him the way that he touches him in a very personal way, even that is Taste buds would know this. I I am the one doing this. I am healing you. Jesus is winning the man, and he's showing him where he should put his faith in the Lord Himself. Well, that's about all I got for the that miracle. I want to focus mainly on the first miracle because um, as we said at the beginning here, what the context, context, context is key, right? Well, we're told here in verse 24 that Jesus arose and went away, okay? He goes to this region, and basically he's on the Mediterranean Sea on the coast. He's enjoying some peace and quiet. He wants some R&R. We are talking vacation, bed and breakfast, Airbnb, okay? Where is Jesus? Well, we're told very clearly that he entered a house, He's inside a house deep in, in Gentile country by the coast, enjoying some R&R, and we have a massive intrusion, right? Here comes this woman, and she comes into the house, and she's a Gentile. And she's, you're going to see all the strikes against her in a second that you know, Mark just wants us to see, but why would she do this? Why would she come into his home like this? And she loves her daughter. I love Matthew's account. Matthew 15's account of this gives a lot more details, but she actually refers to him as Lord three times, and she, and she continues to beg. This beg is uh, ongoing. So she's begging and begging and begging. As a matter of fact, in Matthew's account, it's like they try to the disciples try to shut her up. And, and get her to move on. And she is persistent and she comes up to him and says, Lord, help me. She's in desperate straits because her daughter has a demon and this is a mother who loves uh, her child, okay? And so she is concerned for her daughter and it reminds us much of Monica. And if you know the story of Monica, and and many of us don't these days. We probably know about Santa Monica Boulevard more than we might know about Monica. But Monica is Augustine's mother. Okay, and he's the early church father, that he was the firstborn child of three, and the first two were easy converts. The Lord just wonderfully worked in their lives. But Augustine was was stubborn. And he had big issues with lust and pride. And His mother just would not stop praying for him. And in book two of his confessions, he writes that you have stretched forth your hand from above and drew up my soul out of that profound darkness because of my mother. Your faithful one wept to you on my behalf more than mothers are accustomed to weep for the bodily deaths of their children. So he, he's testifying that his mother was pouring out weeping tears more than, than if he had died physically. And nine years before his conversion, he went to a bishop and was praying with so persistent with tears that the bishop told her, go. It cannot be that the son of these tears should perish. And she took that as if they had sounded from heaven. She took that as confidence. But she continued to pray. And then after he is converted, Augustine's testimony in his confessions is, I am your child, O God. It's because you gave me such a mother. <laughs> a mother that was going to continue to weep and, and pray for her child. And she was persistent. And so was this woman here. She is ongoing persistent. And she's a little bit, she's tenacious and you might even say intrusive. She's like one of my friends saying, you know, about his wife. He used to say, if she goes into the corner to get the puck, she's coming out with the puck. You know, she's one of these women that she, she's. There's going to be a scrum, she's coming out with the puck. She's, she's determined, and it's important, I think, for us to recognize that there's something here to emulate for all of us because what can you really give your children? We can give a lot of things to our children but I can not give them a new heart. I can't give them a new record. And I can't give them a new life. I can give them Christian education. We can give them good influences. We can give them good teaching. We can give them a good environment, a safe environment. We can lead them to lots of water, but we cannot make them drink. We can even make them compliant, but we can't make them converted. We might even make them good professors of the faith, but we can't make them possessors of the faith. Matthew Henry said, parents should look upon it as a great mercy to themselves to have Satan's power broken in the souls of their children. Our children might not be possessed by the devil like demon possessed, but the imagery of scripture about our children is that they're dead in trespasses and sins like all of us are, blinded by the devil, by the God of this world. They cannot see the light of the gospel who's taken them captive to do his will, and they have to be delivered from the power of Satan to God. So that would make us a little bit tenacious and want to pray pretty f- feisty prayers. And what we see about this woman is she doesn't have a whole lot going for her. You look at verse 26 and it's, she's got strike one, strike two, strike three, and strike four. Strike one, we're just told she's a woman. That's strike one, that wouldn't have gone real well in the Jewish culture. Strike two is she's a Gentile. That's bad news in in the Jewish environment. And then she's a Syro-Phoenician, which is she is a real pagan, and Phoenicia is where the the Baal worship just thrived, and this is Jezebel's hometown. This is like the, the birthing place of Baal worship. And then strike four is her daughter has a demon. So she, I mean, you want to talk about like unclean and like this woman has all the strikes, outwardly speaking, against her. And so, when you think about it just in context, I mean, you, you read this and it seems a bit harsh. And let me just try to put it in a little bit of context for us today. If you were gonna go out to a restaurant, let's say last night you wanted to go out to the Rio, or you wanted to go to uh, the Ketlins Brown Plaza, you're gonna go out to eat, and you say you're just gonna show up at 6.30. And you walk up to the hostess or host and you say, I'd like to have a seat. What is the hostess going to say to you and the host? Do you have a reservation? And you say, no. And then she looks at you like you're from Mars. Or he looks at you and basically says, the wait time is going to be at least 75 minutes. And you might want to go somewhere else because good luck with that right? Because the restaurant has an order to it. And who is the order for? Those who've called in advance and made a reservation. All right, let's try another example. You go to a doctor appointment, but there's no appointment. You just decide you're going to show up. You go to your doctor's office, you go to the clerk, and you'd say, I'd like to meet with Dr. So-and-so. And And the person at the desk is going to say to you, do you have an appointment? <laughs> and you say, no, I just thought I would pop in and see if I could catch them here for a few minutes. And they would look at you like you were from Mars, and they would say, we don't take walk-in appointments. And our next appointment is, and you know, they'd look like four or five days down the road, maybe longer, and that's when they would tell you your appointment is. Now, because doctor's offices and restaurants, they have an order to them. There's a priority. There's those who make appointments, those who are first. And so in the context, in the story here of of redemption, what's the context? Where do we find ourselves? Well, if you go back to the way back, all the way back to before Abraham, you have the Tower of Babel, you have the nations are dispersed, they're sent out, they're speaking different languages, and it's a big problem because they were trying to make it to God themselves and God has to, disperse them and spread them out and God is going to start with one person, Abraham. That's his priority. He starts with Abraham and then he's going to work through one nation and one language and he's going to start there. And he's going to use Israel and he's going to make them a light to the world, a light to the nations. And so we see this word first a lot of times in the New Testament, particularly in the book of Acts. And it's used in this text, is it not? He says... To her let the children be fed first okay it's not to say you can't be fed it's just there's an order there's a priority so the word first is a pretty important word in your text okay you think of the book of of Acts let's just think about the book of Acts for a second so in the book of Acts we're, we're given this great promise you shall be my witnesses and where do you start Jerusalem, concentric circle, Judea and Samaria, concentric circle, uttermost parts of the earth. So the ripples are going to boom, 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 boom. They're going to move out. But where are they moving from? It starts with Israel. It starts with Jerusalem. And then as you go through the book, you have verses like Acts 3.26 that says, God raised up his servant, Jesus, sent him to you first, Israel, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Then you get to Acts 13. And the Jews saw the crowds, verse 45, they're filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. And they said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. But since you've thrust it aside and just judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light For the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, it's interesting. He takes a verse from Isaiah that is meant for Israel. And now the apostles now, we have, you know, all the prophets are Jewish. All the disciples are Jewish. And Jesus himself is a Jew. There's a priority, is there not? And now we see the the prophets now in Acts, or the apostles are now going to the Gentiles. But first they went to the Jews. Same thing in Acts twenty six, Paul before King Agrippa, says I was not Paul says I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. And on it goes. So you see, there is a priority. Maybe a good summary verse that we know is Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And what's the last part? To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And so, it's more of for her to recognize her place. I remember years ago, just when we were going to plant a church in, in Germantown, and I thought I'd call the M A, one of the directors of M A, which is Mission of the World. Our Mission North America, and I called this guy, and, and I said, hey, I said, we, we're in a very diverse area. It's becoming more and more diverse, and we'd really like to have a black pastor come to Germantown, you know, and, or to Upper Montgomery County. And his reply that I've never forgotten, and we've, we've since talked about it, and he apologized that he even said it. He just said, well, get in line. And he just started to explain, you're the third call this week with that request. I get requests from every week of that. How many black men do you think are graduating from seminary? How many do you think are in the pipeline? Like, do you have any idea what you're asking? There's hardly anybody in the pipeline. And everybody's asking, so get in line. Like, he was just, you know, he was... And later he apologized, and yeah, I shouldn't have said that, you know. But he was trying to give me some perspective of... Know, know your place. Like if you think you're going to be pushed up, like, oh yeah, we'll just, we'll just go get you that. No, no problem. It's not as easy as you think. It's a great idea, but the reality is there's other things going on here. And what we see in this parable is that um, this woman is just the opposite, though, of the scribes and the Pharisees, They're trying to trap Jesus. They want to ensnare him in his words for the wrong reasons. They want to bring him down. But Jesus throws out a parable to her. And in the parable that he throws out to her, he's saying the children get fed first, the people of Israel. And the Gentiles, they get next. And that would be the puppies. There's two different terms for dogs. This is not the outside dog. This is the inside dog. This is the dog. This is the house pet that... And she doesn't mind at all. She's not offended by that. Our modern ears tend to be offended. She she is not offended in the least. She turns it right around, and she traps Jesus in his words, and she's using it for good. But the, the dogs eat right from the table, and anything that falls off the table, they eat it. And I can testify that the Gates dog's at my house right now. And I dropped a piece of chicken and a piece of potato. Man, before I could even get to it, Izzy was on it. Man, I, I texted Ian. I said, man, this dog is fast, man. He just said, yeah, she's, she's like lightning. And that's the, that's the parable that Jesus is telling her. She's not offended. She's not disgusted. She's not insulted because she knows she's in Ephesians 2.12 she gets Ephesians 2.12. You know, she probably never heard it. But she knew she's separated from Christ, alien from the commonwealth of Israel, stranger to the covenant of promise, far off, and she knows, I, am, I know my place. She's in line. I'm way back there, but I'm okay with that. But Lord, help me. You see, she, she understands that nothing in my hands I bring Simply to the cross I cling, naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for dress. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die, as top lady talks about in Rock of Ages hymn. She gets it, nothing, nothing in my bringing. Our problem is we too often think we deserve something from Jesus. We deserve something. We deserve better. And it's, it's real subtle But it's real easy to think, well, I deserve a better job, better car, better house, better school, better teacher, better church, better parents, better children, better paycheck. What do we deserve? Have any of us come to God with clean hands, a pure heart, and never lifted up our souls to an idol? Do we deserve anything? I mean, we're given two rhetorical questions to always remember. That's the Job 41 and the Romans 11. And the one is, who has a claim against me that I must pay? God just says, who has a claim against me that I must pay? Because everything out in our heaven belongs to me. Nobody has a claim that God has to pay. The only claim he has to, I mean, what we deserve is, is hell. So that's the first one. And the second one is, is just like in Romans 11 at the end. He says, who's ever given to God that God should repay him? Who's ever given to God that God should repay him? Like, no, I did this for you, God. I was thinking you'd do this for me. She's, she's just the opposite. But she prays with leverage. You see, she's like, Spurgeon put it like this. Call me a dog? She says very well. I'll be a dog and I'll get the crumbs. Now, poor soul, Spurgeon says, in the same state by the Holy Spirit's aid, we should do the same thing. And this is basically what Chris Marcantonio shared this morning with the, with the Luther quote. Spurgeon says the same thing. He says, Satan has been saying to you, you've broken God's law, you've offended him, you've been a sinner. Spurgeon says, well, soul, if you have any wit left, cut the devil's head off with his own sword and say to him, I am a sinner. But it is written, it's a faithful and trustworthy saying of all acceptance, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. You see, and so against, what she does is G. Campbell Morgan says, I like this, Against prejudice, she came. Against silence, she persevered. Against exclusion, she proceeded. Against rebuff, she won. This woman's confidence in Jesus' ability and desire to help her stands in complete contrast to the attitude of the Jewish religious leaders towards Jesus. The inside crowd is the one that's the most hostile, the one that's trying to trap him and work it against him, And she is believing, she gets who he is, and now she's using his words for good. She doesn't come demanding her bleeding charity. If you remember the classic story in The Great Divorce with Lewis's allegory about this bus that's uh, in hell and it's headed towards heaven, and there's this amazing prospect, it's fiction. But in this amazing story, any who, who choose to are permitted to stay in heaven. And so it's an enticing opportunity. As you're going through the book, you have these different characters, and each is a ghost from hell, is visited by a spirit from, from heaven who aims to call the, the ghost to detach from that which keeps them in hell, whether it be pride, vanity, lust, or you know, some other attachment. And so one of the ghosts in the scene who's boarded now this bus to heaven is approached by an employee of his from earth now a spirit in heaven and the ghost of hell is surprised that his former employee has made it to heaven and he insists that he deserved to make it there himself and this is what he says i've gone straight all my life I don't say I was a religious man, and I don't say I had no faults, far from it. But I've done my best all my life, see, and I've done my best by everyone, and that's the sort of chap I am. I never asked of anything that wasn't mine by rights. And the ghost in heaven repeats with in- insistence that, wait a minute. And, 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 but the other goes, no, no. He only wants his rights. He's not wanting special treatment or hands out. He only wants what he deserves. And the Spirit assures the ghost that he would receive something far better than what he deserves. In fact, the Spirit says he's not gotten his rights either, for if he had, he wouldn't be in heaven. And the ghost that's in hell it, it continues to be flabbergasted and blubbering about rights. And he, and he goes and says, "Well, what do you keep on arguing for? I'm only telling you the sort of chap I am. I only want my rights. I'm, on, I'm not asking for anybody's bleeding charity. And the other spirit says, then do it once, ask for the bleeding charity. Everything is here for the asking and nothing nothing can be bought. And yet the other ghost says in conclusion, I'd rather be damned than go along with you. I came here to get my rights, see, not to go sniveling along on charity tied, tied onto your apron strings. You see, today, If you look in your bulletin quote there, that in the beginning, the reflection quotes, Tim Keller has this very insightful quote about being from the West and how in the Western cultures, and to some degree, he says we're products of that. We don't have anything like this kind of assertiveness, this assertiveness of this uh, Syrophoenician woman. He says we only have assertion of our rights. We don't know how to be assertive. We do not know how to content, contend unless we're standing for our rights, standing on our own dignity, standing on our goodness, and saying, this is what I'm owed. He says, this is not, a, not that at all. This isn't contention. This is not assertiveness for your rights. This is rightless assertiveness, and we don't know anything about this. She's coming to God like a laser beam, but she completely accepts her unworthiness. Well, then why is she coming? We don't even know because we don't have any other motivation. Here's what she's saying. She's saying, I'm not coming to you on the basis of my goodness. I'm coming on the basis of yours. And if any of you are familiar with the Book of Common Prayer, the Anglican Church, there is a prayer that's done before communion, and it's called the Prayer of Humble Access. And it begins like this. We do not presume to come to this table, O merciful Lord trusting in our own righteousness but in your abundant and great mercies we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table it's recognizing we're not worthy we're not even worthy of the crumbs under the table this is actually elevation to be a dog (laughs) that's elevating but we are now able to come through jesus and what we see in the in the picture of mark in the context 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 is this picture in mark of the outsiders are brought in and insiders are moved out and the last are first and the first are last and the humble are exalted and the exalted are humbled you have this incredible reversal throughout the whole book and so what we have here is in the gospel of mark we have a leper coming to jesus getting healed a leper getting touched. We have demon-possessed people getting healed. We have a woman with a hemorrhage who's unclean and been bleeding, and she touches Jesus, and she is healed. We have little children coming to Jesus, even though the disciples try to push them away. We have blind Bartimaeus who continues to cry out all the more, have mercy on me, son of David. We have a nameless woman who anoints Jesus at at Bethany for burial. We have a, a Gentile centurion at the cross who recognizes, truly, this was the Son of God. And we have a Syrophoenician woman, a Gentile sinner who's from the worst pedigree possible, from Jezebel's er region and from Baal territory. And what we see is many who are first will be last. And though she deserved to be last, she gets a hold of the parable and she puts it to Jesus. Jesus. And Jesus says, because of this word, literally because of her logon, her logos, her word, her statement, her testimony, she says, he says, he said to her for this statement, for this word, he saw the faith. You may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. God honored her prayer because She was not insulted. I really think that Jesus was testing this woman to say, to see if she would get it, to see if she would get her place where she fits. And she got it, and the Lord met her. How about you? Do you recognize your place? That we're not worthy of the least of his mercies, as Jacob says. And yet we go and wrestle with him like Jacob did. I won't let you go until you bless me. He wouldn't let him go. And that's what this woman's doing here is he won't let him go. And though we're not worthy of the least of his mercies, we plead by his grace. Let's pray together. Lord God, we don't come because we're righteous, but because you are merciful, bounding in steadfast love. Lord, we are a needy people. May we not forget that we are children of Adam and Lord, we are sinners sinners by nature and we thank you that you have saved us through Jesus through the one man the last Adam we thank you Lord Jesus for your perfect life your perfect death on our behalf in our place and we thank you now that you've opened heaven's door And you welcome us. We thank you that we are in your beloved. Bless us this day. Help us to wrestle with you with the trials of life. And Lord, even in recognizing our own need for salvation is a total gift. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.